Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Manan Ahmed Asif about his new book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, published this year by Harvard University Press. Professor Asif is a historian of South Asia and the Indian Ocean at Columbia University and the founder of the blog Chapati Mystery. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Professor Asif. Thank you, Sami. Thank you for having me. Really delighted to be here. It's a really great book, so I'm really happy you agreed to do the interview. Okay, so as you know, our first question is always biographical. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in South Asian history? I've listened to some of your previous interviews and how you ended up becoming a historian is a really interesting story. (laughs) Uh, Sure, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I grew up in, I was born and raised in Pakistan, in Lahore, and I Grew up during, uh, let's just call them the military dictatorships, uh, a couple of them. And uh, that was basically my high school experience, uh, thinking about history and politics as very much intertwined and very much dominated by the state, by the nation state, uh, a militarized nation state at that. And uh, I came to the United States um in order to pursue a career in engineering, as most of my generation's um, parents were uh, asking us to do. And while in the U.S., I had a change of heart and a change of course. And I ended up, after a few years, um, switching over to history. And I guess the, 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 the thing that resonates with me so many years later about that decision was uh, that it was motivated just as much by what I was reading at the time, um, which was a lot of biographies, a lot of histories, a lot of uh, political theory work, but as well as trying to, I was struggling to find out how I fit in the paradigms that I was placed in, both as a undocumented immigrant at the moment in the United States, which was still going through a pretty heavy anti-migrant at that moment, tied to the first, you know, between the first Iraq war and the second Iraq war. Um, but also in the sense that how do I, as a citizen of Pakistan, make sense of the Pakistani past, uh, which somehow magically begins in 1947, uh, according to uh, you know, according to my textbooks, etc. So it was really a, a, a kind of a way in which my exilic condition and my upbringing clashed, and history seemed like a way to figure out some of these questions. It seemed like a very difficult way. There is no way that I can tell say with a straight face that when I began to think about going to graduate school, uh, getting a PhD, that I had 
any hope that I would succeed, not even in getting into a BA program, let alone having a PhD or getting a job. So it was a, it was just a pipe dream. Um, and it took um, an enormous amount of kindness and mentorship from strangers and teachers to allow me uh, the capacity to, to kind of um, strive towards that goal. But that's, that, that part of, trying to figure out how to think about um, how to think against, I guess, the nation, uh, both the nation that I was in, the U.S., um, and its xenophobia, its anti-immigrant, its anti-Islam um, focus, but also the nation that I was part of, uh, how, to, how to think about them. That was the motivation for why I began to think about, I guess, early Islam in a, in a, in a strange way. I, I, I didn't want to do modern historiography. I was really convinced from the very beginning that I wanted to think about pre-modern periods um, in order to get at the, the question that I wanted to um, answer for myself. Okay, that's great. No, it's such, it's such an interesting story. Uh, and maybe towards the end, we'll come back to that. Um, um, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project? What made you want to write this particular book? Um, absolutely. Um, I think the genesis, properly speaking, um, lies in a in a um, graduate level course that uh, Shahid Amin, Professor Shahid Amin, who was visiting Chicago, University of Chicago, where I was doing my doctoral work. Um, I think it was two thousand. Um, <clears throat> this is my first year or my second year, yeah. And uh, Professor Shahid Amin uh, taught a course that was on Muslim historiography, and that course uh, had a lot of the um, genesis of some of the material that ended up being in this particular work. And even though I was focused on the question of um, early Islam and Chachnama for the next 10 years, um, this idea, this, this, this notion of the how do we think about Muslim historiography in general continued to kind of be central to my my thinking. And so the genesis of it is really that particular course. And then how do I explain um, a bigger story about Muslim historiography outside of the framework of the, not a small question, but a particular story that I had told in my first book. And I think it's kind of like that puzzle, uh, right? Like where you get like the smaller part and now you want to fit that puzzle bit into the, the other bits that you have assembled elsewhere. So, so that's basically, I think, where after I finished my first book, I, I have another project that I was thinking about, but I felt compelled to actually return to this and finish this book first. Great. Yeah. And you can definitely tell uh, that there's a clear connection between your previous book and, and this one. Um, okay. I think it's, uh, before we get into the book itself, I think it's important to note that while this book is an important intervention into South Asian history, it is also a work of global intellectual history. I know there's a lot of discussion these days about what global history means. Could you tell us what you think, uh, what your understanding of global intellectual, uh, intellectual history is and how this book fits into that field? Um, absolutely. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, 
how do I say this? I think it is important for us to understand that, you know, academic movements, especially when it comes to things like, uh, you know, trends are, are hard to see as they're evolving and one can only see them in retrospect. And so there was a time, especially when I was in graduate school, when world systems theory was very big. And obviously before that, um, we had a whole conversation about the kind of Marxist historiography. Um, but at least from the early 2000s and driven, I think, largely by the scholars who are interested in kind of French and <clears throat> English connections to the colonial world, um, there has been this um, remarkable uh, surfeit of books uh, in the category of global intellectual history. They tend to be, in my view, focused uh, largely in Europe's interaction with the quote-unquote world. So they're global in so much as Europe is a part of the conversation. And um, I think that's fine, uh, and that's important, but I, I feel a lot of the politics of such books to be quite lacking in, um, in their engagement with the question of decolonization and their question of colonial violence itself. So in, in some respects, I, I think global intellectual history is useful for us to think about new paradigms, but in other respects, it, it doesn't seem to be anything more than thinking about a few European thinkers and maybe or a few non-West, quote-unquote, non-West ideas and their proliferation in Europe. Um, <clears throat> and insofar as my work is concerned, I feel that it tries to destabilize both of these categories. That is, it tries to think about Europe from the outside, um, but also trace how intellectual ideas were were violently taken by Europe. Uh, so not in a kind of osmosis style, but hacking and excerpting and rendering them into impure, imperfect translations, putting large prefaces, prefatory materials, writing the analysis, the meaning of the text before the text is encountered. All of these textual um, uh, violences are part of this osmosis, the so-called osmosis. And I, I, I wanted to, um, as I, I think I put it in the book, I wanted to, quote, put Europe in its place. But the place here is really one where epistemic violence is taking place uh, on on the thought of uh, in the, in my particular case on the thought of a uh, historian from Hindustan. I hope that answers somewhat your question. I'm sorry. No, no, absolutely, and uh, that completely that really comes through in the book, and uh, we'll get to the issue of decolonizing uh, as well uh, a bit later in the uh, in the talk. <laughs> Um, now, getting to the book itself, could you begin by explaining what you mean by the title, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, as it gets to the heart of this book? Um, I think the title refers to the sort of twin move, twin simultaneous move that I am trying to trace, which is how do we take about a, think, think about a concept like Hindustan um, and why it's, let's just say, not in parlance as much in, in the way that it it was in, in for a large, large kind of swath of, of uh, pre-modern uh, period. And 
At the same time, there's a naturalized category called India, for which we can imagine something like ancient India or early India. Um, and that naturalized category seems to be prevalent. And my argument in the book um, actually begins from a silence or begins from a struggle that as a historian, I feel that um, I faced, which is how do I write a history of something that no one recognizes as having gone missing? Um, and it's so it's not a project of exhumation. Uh, it's not a recovery project. Um, it's something that is about how to think about a concept world with whose kind of central pillars have been shifted and another understanding has been constructed on top of it. So, you know, the word Hindustan, you can still hear it and people refer to it, especially as uh, belonging to India and or belonging to Hindus. And that's what, you know, would be your, your, uh, on your typical YouTube comment uh, under a video, you would see that. Um, but for a generation that, um, again, were my teachers, uh, Professor C.M. Naeem, uh, Professor Muzaffar Alam, who are either the kind of midnight children born in 47 or earlier, born earlier than 1947, for them, Hindustan had a separate meaning that uh, slowly kind of uh, disappears from view. And so part of the project is to um, understand how a concept like Hindustan existed for so long. And then what were the processes through which it's displaced into a concept called India? And what I argue in the book is that there is a, um, there is a transition so it's not Hindustan to India. It's actually Hindustan to Mughal Hindustan to British India to India. And that's the process through which a type of denaturalization and a naturalization happens. And as a concept history, the book then tries to show both how these concepts existed in various historical works, but also what is the process through which the um, the deconstruction of the concept happened and the reconstruction of a new world is made possible under, or made real under colonial, British colonial rule. That's great. Yeah, that, that explains, um, you know, the, the major intervention you're, you're making and it's, uh, it's a really, um, I think, a compelling argument. Um, now, getting into the book itself, um, you know, you discuss a lot of figures, both Hindustani and British, um, but you place Muhammad Qasim Farishta and his text, Tariqe Farishta, at the center of your story. Who was he? What was this text? And why did you decide to make him the central figure in this book? I think, um, again, I think this goes to the the previous question, where, you know, how do we kind of think about a concept history when the idea of the concept is no longer clear or is obscured? Um, what I needed to do was have a sense of the concept that wasn't in the in that kind of quadrilineal equation I just mentioned, right? The Hindustan, mobile Hindustan, British India, India. So I needed to think about Hindustan outside of that equation uh, for precisely the reason that how do you, as a historian, how do you how do you show change over time if you are within the kind of uh, changing world. Um, so I, I, I didn't want to 
write a book using a mobile uh, historian primarily or their mobile understanding of it because then I am in the Mughal Hindustan part of the equation and which gets displaced, displaced by British India. And that's a much more familiar story to people. Um, and so how do you get to the idea of Hindustan? Um, and obviously I didn't want it to be a book that's in the 12th or 13th century because then people would say, well, you know, this is just old news and the Mughals um, changed the structure anyways, epistemic, uh, ontological perhaps of India as the argument of Hinduism is. So again, it was kind of, how do we approach this question of thinking about the past from a, from a venue that shows us something, something new, something with a clarity. And uh, Farishta, who was a, uh, he was a he was a physician, he was a diplomat, he was a courtier. Um, he came from a, a line of uh, sort of salaried uh, intellectuals, I guess is the right word, um, <clears throat> in the Deccan. And he's writing basically in the early 17th century. Um, and he is not part of the Mughal acumen in a direct way. He is, uh, he's um, um, uh, attached to the court in Bijapur. Um, the Bijapur's uh, sultans are incredibly important um, figures in themselves, but they are no, they're, they do not have, you know, they're no way competitors to or um, in any way, shape, um, equal to uh, the Mughal in, um, in Agra or in Delhi at the moment. So it's thinking about Hindustan, but from outside the Mughal Hindustan. And it's thinking about Hindustan from a perspective that one could say is not invested in the political program that the Mughal state has. So that's one kind of explanation for how Farishta becomes so important for me. But the other more, I guess, direct or more clear implication is that I argue in the book that Farishta's text, the Tariq Farishta, that his history, in his own uh, formulation, is the first synthetic full history of Hindustan. So he's very clearly himself as an author saying, look, I'm writing a history of Hindustan, and it's going to be all of Hindustan, and it's going to be as in one synthetic voice. And that's his own claim. And so in a sense, I was able to use his words, use his uh, authorial intention, use his position, use his uh, physical, uh, I mean, sorry, geographical uh, um, sort of uh, separation from the mobile state to then be able to write a, uh, a way in which this history looks like um, from uh, from the Deccan perspective and make Deccan the center of my my story, as the Deccan was the center of Farishta's story. So, Tariq Farishta, which is a massive text, um, which has been, um, I mean, as I show in the book, has been incredibly influential on Enlightenment thought, and many historians had mentioned it or talked about it as early as uh, Ranajit Guha. Uh, the but no one had really kind of delved into the entire text. No one had really thought about the text itself in 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 fullness. 
there were a few articles, uh, most importantly, Atarali's article, where he compares um, Farishta to Abul Fazl, another historian, local historian. Um, so I thought, you know, this is this is this book has to be about Farishta, and this book has to be how Farishta sees the world, and that's where the importance of Farishta uh, emerged to me. Um, I'll just say one quick thing, and then um, I don't want to take up too much time on this question. But you know, I was reading Farishta for the first time, as in, you know, uh, page by page, line by line, um, while I was in Mexico City. Um, and I was teaching a class on decolonization there, and I was thinking about what the 17th century meant from the Latin American perspective in terms of Spanish colonization. And I was reading these um, accounts of Spanish colonialism and also responses to Spanish colonialism that were written in Natal and, um, and whose traces were found in other texts. And it was really that moment of reading Farishta in Mexico City, in Oaxaca, that I was able to kind of see the text, Farishta's text, in a in a global, if we want to use that word again, in a in a transregional perspective. And I that's when I was I was able to say that yeah, this is a story that has to be told with Europe at the center of it. Um, uh, as in the European incursion, which had which had began to happen in Farishta's lifetime, and so that kind of made Farishta the kind of not just the center, but the, the but the lens through which I was seeing everything else that I write about in the book. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, that um, Mexico or being in Mexico helped you, uh, uh, you know, while you were working on this book, helped you. Uh, um, think about your argument or think about this book differently. Um, I found it interesting that although your book focuses on both Farishta's writing in the 17th century and European colonial epistemology, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, you decided not to structure your book chronologically. Could you tell us how you decided to structure your book thematically as well as how you constructed each of your chapters? Um, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, that took a lot of time to figure out. Uh, and I will say a little bit about why. Um, I think the chronological argument um, has been incredibly, um, not, the chronological, um, let me just rephrase that. The way in which we write um, pre-modern historians who uh, end up writing about pre-modern past in a chronological fashion allows us to draw a line between the arrival of colonialism and obvious you know anti-colonial struggle and the post-colonial struggle and it allows for i think a false separation between the periods that we study 13th century from in from my case and the 18th or the 19th century um, when colonialism is happening and or the post-colonial period um, what I wanted to um, put across in my book was that the, the epistemic violence that colonialism performs on us makes the question of time incredibly important for us to deal with. Like we as post-colonized historians or post-colonized subjects have to understand that time cannot be temporally um, straight line for us because colonialism has reordered our understanding of temporality. And for 
a book that was arguing about concept histories, I needed to make sure that I do not reinscribe those temporalities into my book. So one of the arguments in the book is the ways in which colonialism ordered and reordered knowledge itself. Now, in that reordering of knowledge, the parts of the pre-modern intellectual history that I'm interested in are also reordered. They are rendered into different languages. They are excerpted. The, the physical manuscripts are taken and dispersed. The capacity to catalog those manuscripts or to um, put them into genres or to read them um, are all reconfigured by colonial rule. When we as post-colonial historians, post-colonized historians look at these, look for, look at these sources, we erase that colonial ordering. So we may cite Ate or we may cite, um, um, you know, another colonial <clears throat> cataloger or a librarian or a scholar who is saying something about these texts, but we put that in the footnote. And we put that in the footnote as a archival visit or as a uh, citation for a um, for an argument. And I wanted to make sure that that epistemic reordering is not rendered invisible. So that was a challenge, a uh, challenge as an author, as a writer that I was uh, confronted with. How do I write this book such that these these reorderings are not made invisible. I did get a lot of pushback, in fact, from the press reviewers uh, who said, well, this, this is a book about Farishta. Why is Farishta always come last? <laughs> um, and I think that, that was the misunderstanding of the task that I was doing. And so I, I, I imagined my chapters in the beginning of writing process to say, how do I get at the question of colonial knowledge production, colonial ordering and reordering? And then how do I build a world before Furishta and then a, a world off Furishta? So the, each chapter does have kind of these three layers, which is the kind of 12th through 16th century Hindustani historiography, uh, sorry, the European historiography, then the 12th to 16th century his, uh, Hindustani historiography, and then Furishta. And part of it is to, again, um, force a asynchronous, atemporality to the structure of a chapter. And the chapter themselves, instead of pre pre proceeding, you know, um, in a straight line through Frishta, right? So you one could imagine a reading of Frishta, a book that's on the reading of Frishta that would say, you know, Frishta volume one, Frishta volume two, Frishta volume three, et cetera, et cetera, in that sense. I also don't do that. Um, in fact, I read Frishta thematically as well. So how does Frishta, you know, talk about place and how does he talk about archive and how does he talk about people and so on and so forth. And so all both of these acts, um, the physical ordering of the chapter and the, the kind of reading of Frishta, um, I do these in order to displace the colonial um, temporal and epistemic um, frameworks that I feel um, we need to do as historians or as as, as intellectuals um, in order to get at 
uh, some of the epistemic uh, disturbances that we have to account for in our work. That's great. And uh, yeah, at least for me, the the structure of the book was really fascinating and, and, and worked. Um, looking at one of those chapters, chapter three, which is entitled An Archive of Hindustan, you begin with, this book is intended as a simultaneous history of Hindustan as a concept and its erasure, a genealogy of political thought that persisted and that seems to have vanished without a trace. It does require a lexical shift from secondary sources to archives and an analytical shift from origins to belonging. Could you begin, uh, could you expand on this part as it seems quite important to your methodology and how does this compare with your first book that you mentioned earlier, A Book of Conquest? Uh, <clears throat> thank you. I think for the Book of Conquest, one of the things that um, I was arguing in that book was that it was a book against origins. It was a book that said, there is an origins story that is being told about Islam and about Muslims. And that origin story has to be challenged. Um, and that for the book was the idea that Muslims were foreigners or were in, in more, more precisely, they were, they were conquerors, they were invaders um, to the subcontinent. And in that book, I ordered, I argued that even if you, in historiography, uh, say, well, the first conquest was in 712, um, and maybe then, maybe perhaps a hundred years later, we're no longer <clears throat> looking at the idea of conquering, but just people living there. Um, that's not what happens in South Asia, as in Muslims as an entity, uh, as an uh, abstract entity, don't conquer once. Uh, in fact, they conquer again and again and again and again. And so, um, what the historiography, the colonial historiography, did was that it it strung a line of conquest together in order to every 50 years or every 100 years to rejuvenate the idea of Muslim conquest. And <clears throat> Muslims thus never belong. They never become part of the subcontinent. They are always arriving, always conquering. Um, and that was the colonial paradigm. And in my first book, I, I contested that through my reading of a 13th century text, which I argued in that book, actually shows you a uh, cohabitation, shows you how to build an ethical uh, polity in, in, in sync. And I think in the, you know, I, I rarely remember my own writing, I'm sorry to say, um, but I think somewhere in the end, I do say that is it possible that we can write a history of Muslim belonging uh, rather than Muslim uh, outsiderness? And the the effort for this book was precisely to write a history of Muslim belonging. Um, and in order to write a history of Muslim belonging, um, the analytical shift um, that I, I'm, I'm arguing for in this book is is precisely to imagine this this category of Hindustani historian uh, who who traverses this 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 periodization and who is able to write histories where they can um, argue specifically for their um, deep roots, for their deep imprecation in the in the soil, literal soil of Hindustan. And this history of Muslim belonging, I, I feel, has a potential to reorganize that history of origins or the history of conquest. 
<clears throat> Sorry. So, um, in this sense, I think the analytical shift that allows us to see this archive um, that I talk about in that chapter, this archive of Persian histories, of Sanskrit chronicles um, that, that exist in, from the 13th century onwards, we see this archive as an as a as a as a uni unified or as a as a uh, consistent grain of thought, and that Farishta, as a historian in the 17th century, can imagine. So it's not an argument that I am making ipso facto. It's actually what Farishta, my my kind of window into this world, is seeing. So. When Frishta says, I would like to write a history of Hindustan proper, um, about all of its parts and of all of its past, uh, what does he do? Well, he says, I have to go and read different histories. I have to visit specific libraries. And he uses his day job, quote unquote, to go on library visits. And he's constantly talking about who's a good librarian and who's a bad librarian, who allows him time to make copies of manuscript and who's hurrying in. <clears throat> and and so this is the uh, this is the world of the archive that Farishta enters and that I then as a as a as a writer um allow to be um to be um, you know kind of develop over the course of the chapter. Now the issue is that the colonial state, especially someone like um, uh, uh, Henry Myers Eliot, who has a, a project for rendering Persian uh, histories, per Arabic and Persian histories into English. What they did to this archive is that they fragmented it. He, uh, Eliot argues for ex extremely explicit phases and who is a believable historian who is a non-believable, who is uh, full of, uh, you know, uh, superfluous, fantastical imagination and cannot be used for the purpose of history writing and whose words can be cherry-picked in order to build a political history. That fracturing of the archive, uh, that, um, and also that accumulation of the archive. So what Elliot does is he collects all this manuscript that he thinks are required to write the history of the what he calls Muhammad in India. And so that accumulation and then subsequent dispersal and fracturing, that is counterpoised to Farishta's idea of the archive, which is, in fact, um, quite substantial, quite thick, and available to him as a, as a voice within which he can engage with in the 16th and the 17th century. And I, in that chapter, I'm trying to, to help as a reader understand that world that is possible for Farishta and, and how that world falls apart under colonial rule and why we, as our post-colonized historians, actually can't imagine that world, the possibilities of that world. Um, so that's the kind of epistemic analytical shift that I'm, um, I'm referring to in the opening of that chapter. Okay, thank you. Um, so now that we know how you structured the book and your methodology, could you break down how Farishta and other Hindustani writers talked about the archive, places, peoples, and history of Hindustan? 
Sure. So the, 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 the kind of chapters of the book are, as you, as you mentioned, archives, uh, places, um, um, peoples uh, are my construction in the sense that Barista does not organize his text along those lines. Um, but I wanted to get a sense of how we can think about his son um, in these kind of, you know, thematic, I, I guess, uh, perspectives. And the reason that I think it's important to, to think along the lines of um, archive and places and people uh, is precisely that uh, the, the multiple ways in which different historians uh, approach the subject of Hindustan, um, I would be able to elucidate them. Again, I don't want to put up a singular idea of Hindustan, nor is it a recuperative project. I don't want to say there was once a Hindustan and now it's gone. I mean, that's not what the book is about. Um, so the diversity of conceptualization of Hindustan had to be made clear, as well as how Farishta intercedes into that diversity. And so for each of the chapters, uh, you know, archive, we just spoke a little bit about. So let me just say a little bit about the places and the peoples uh, specifically. So in the places, which is the kind of notion of how um, spatial organization of Hindustan uh, persisted or or um, varied over time from the 12th, 13th century all the way to uh, the, the colonial period, um, I wanted to make sure that those imagined Basis. So here I'm drawing a lot about on the Sertos, um sort of differentiation between places and spaces. And one of the things that Dissertot asks us to do is to think about stories that one tells about a particular space in order to make it into a place. Um, and so the stories about a space are what I'm interested in in that chapter. Um, how is the space narrated? So if it's a city or the foundation of a city or if it's a, um, you know, a, a particular, um, you know, a particular habitation or a particular polity, what kinds of stories get attached to that in different historical narratives? And then obviously, more importantly, or perhaps um, at the end in first stuff. Um, and also what the various European uh, travelers, merchants, uh, what I call the soldier scribes, um, how do they uh, tell stories about the same place? Um, and so the places chapter kind of moves through these various types of uh, descriptive uh, descriptions of spaces, um, highlighting some of these stories. Um, the colonial project of uh, mapping Hindustan is obviously a, a, a very important part of this project. Um, and what I'm interested in is not the technological um, aspects of that project, which uh, people like Matthew Edney and so many others have uh, done a great job on, uh, but rather how text itself, uh, not only uh, the text of Abul Fazl's Akbarnama, but also Furishta's text, is used to imagine space. And this is a larger fascination of mine in other works as well. So in that chapter, I'm, I'm, I'm really tracing how the colonial mapping thinks about texts rather than how they think about reporting, as, as it were. Um, 
and I feel that the places um, chapter allowed me to give uh, a contour, uh, give some some depth to the idea of Hindustan, physical depth, descriptive depth to the idea of Hindustan. Um, and it was, you know, I guess it's one of the chapters that is very close to the kind of work I did in my first book, which was uh, based on my walking methodology. Um, for the peoples in Hindustan, uh, that was that perhaps the, my my favorite or the one that where I learned the most is <laughs> the way I would say it. Um, because there, the idea of how to narrate the people in Hindustan uh, and how the colonial state creates these categories of sati or they create these categories of, um, you know, um, the the disintegrating Mughal regime as early as 1614 um, became really interesting to me to trace in colonial historiography. And then this, to contrast that with how Farishta approaches the, the the same subject from a place of deep belonging. Um, so the people's kind of thinks about these biographical sketches at some point and categories like Sati and other points um, in order to kind of uh, think about how Hindustan is populated within these textual um, and lexical registers. Um, and and I think that allowed the allowed me as a writer to kind of uh, do a little bit of social history. I'm an intellectual historian, so it's not something I I have uh, I have a whole lot of experience doing. But it allowed me to do a little bit of social history in a in a otherwise the purely intellectual history uh, terrain. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, and my next question, you've already touched on it a little bit, but um, how did, uh, you know, European, um, in contrast to Farishta and other Hindustani writers, um, you know, think about the region, you know, the archive, the places, the peoples, the history? Um, and also, how did um, the British in particular, um, you know, use or talk about Farishta's text uh, from the 18th century onwards? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that happens is that um, the the one of the pivots is a, a gentleman that I talk a lot about, whose name is Alexander Dow. And Alexander Dow is part of the Bengal infantry. He's a lieutenant colonel by the time he dies, and he is he's attached to Hastings. He's part of the East India Company. He's one of these soldier scribes that I mentioned. Um, he fancies himself a translator. He translated a couple of other uh, texts. Um, he also fancies himself as a more powerful man than um, than he was, frankly. Though that's you know up to debate, since his translations did end up becoming um, hegemonic text, as my my teacher Ron Inden used to say. Um, and so Dao. Um, in his uh, in his rendition of uh, Farishta, which he calls a uh, history um, of Hindustan, uh, which he which he's done, uh, which is the first volume comes out in 1768. Um, he he says, well, you know, I need to write a synthetic history of this this place that now belongs to 
um, the British Crown, and I wanted to translate. I, I'm learning Persian and Sanskrit, and I want to translate something in order to, um, you know, practice my my Persian. Um, and this move is also very consistent with something William Jones does um, shortly thereafter, where he also translates a, 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 a from Sanskrit in order to um, uh, in order to you know um, uh, develop his linguistic skills. Um, and also talk about Jones's translation or renditions in, in the chapter, in the, one of the chapters of the book. Um, Dao's rendering of Barishta is accompanied with what we would, in our contemporary parlance, call policy papers. That is how to read what's about to happen, but not just to read it in a passive way, how to think about it and how to operationalize the text that uh, Dao was presenting. And this policy paper is intended for East India Company officials. It's intended, obviously, for the crown. It's intended for all the intellectuals that Dao is friends with. He's friends with David Hume. He's corresponding with Voltaire. Um, Kant is corresponding with Voltaire about Dao's work. Uh, Gibbon is corresponding with them. Um, so this is part of the Scottish and so-called Scottish Enlightenment uh, uh, that is happening. And so these papers, uh, or in, in Dao's language, these dissertations, dissertations on the the Hindus, dissertations on Mughal rule, dissertation on the question of land, uh, become appendages, appendices to the renditions that he's doing of Parishta. And this is an incredibly important point that obviously is not uh, new to me. It was made by uh, Ramajit Guha in his first book. Um, so, and the point is that the Purishta's rendition acts as a carrier text. So it's it's a text that gives a certain type of heft to the argument that um, is a colonial colonizing argument. Uh, Dao, as a soldier scribe, could have simply written what he wanted to write in a policy paper and say, this is who the Hindus are and this is who the Muslim the Mughal state is. And just, you know, sent that off and that's his position as a soldier scribe. But but that's not what happens. What he does is he, he, he attaches that dissertation to this, you know, massive rendering, rendering effort from per, Persian into English. Why? Well, it gives him two things. It gives him this, this um, credibility in the eyes of the colonial state, as well as in the eyes of the intellectual world in Europe that he is a learned person. It gives him gravitas, that he is not making, quote-unquote, making this up. He's deeply, deeply engaging in uh, a Persian text that basically proves all of the points that he wants to make. Um, needless to say, all of that is, you know, demonstrably wrong and false. Um, but still, the, the vehicle of these two volumes that he's produced and publishes, and the, the volumes as they travel, right? So they're in Kant's library. They're in Hegel's library. They are, you know, in Voltaire's library, they, these renderings by Dao. So they become instrumental in the story that Europe begins to tell about the world in, in, the, ten, in, the, in the idea of a universal history or Weltgeschichte. This is the kind of what are the building blocks of that enterprise? Well, one of the building blocks is literally Alexander Dow's rendering of Furishta. 
and the work of intellectual history or global intellectual history that has thought about Hegel's idea of the world or Voltaire's idea of the world, um, I you know have not seen them actually look at the footnotes and and trace those footnotes back to the Persian text and say, oh, this is what's happening. This is the process that's, that's happening. And that's the process that I wanted to lay bare. How does this I, this one particular soldier scribe who says, I want to, you know, make my Persian better by translating a history. And, uh, you know, uh, I was given this history text by Farishta and then I rendered it into translated his words translated into English and dedicated to to King George and published it. How does this act of Orientalism, as we may understand it in a a particular line, um, become part of a project called um, universal history on the one end and part of what becomes known as the um, East India Company's reimagination of land and property, not only in Bengal, but also in the colonies in America. Um, and so this um, becomes an important question for intellectual history as a whole. And what I'm trying to do is just kind of elucidate some of the ways in which um, that history unfolds within the 18th century um, and early 19th century um, in the East India Company in Hindustan. That's great. Yeah. Um, Okay, so now that we've talked about Farishta, um, you know, the European and British uh, sources talking about Hindustan and Farishta, um, you also talk a little bit about uh, Indian figures, uh, you know, 19th and 20th century Indian figures like Muhammad Iqbal, Veer Savarkar, Sarsay Ahmed Khan, and how they talk about Hindustan. I was wondering if you could expand on how these and other Indian nationalists thought about the people, geography, and history of the region they lived in during British colonial rule, and how this may help us understand the partitioning of the subcontinent in 1947. Yeah, thank you. I mean, look, um, I, I, I let me just preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm not a modern historian, um, for better or for worse. Um, so I think... What I wanted to what I wanted to focus on was this kind of engagement of the idea of the Hindustan, and temporally speaking, my book ends right about 1908 or so um, with this what I'm kind of putting in conversation with each other. Two poems, one written by Iqbal, "Sare Jahan Se Acha Hindustan Hamara," that becomes a you know a, a kind of a national anthem uh, during the anti-colonial period. And one that written by Savarkar, which argues for Hindustan belonging to Hindus. Um, so there, the two poems are, um, you know, basically um, um, within a year of each other, and they they produce two two versions of the future that unfolds. And Savarkar, as 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 one of the ideologues and of RSS and the founders of RSS will go on much later and write these kind of seminal works that define what Hindutva is and how Hindu, Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan is a, is a equation 
from which Muslims have to be expelled. Um, and that project uh, unfolds over the 2030s and, 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 and later, and all the way into the 80s and 90s. Um, Iqbal's idea then itself undergoes a slight shift um, by 1930, and obviously by 1947, there's a there's a separatism that's 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 common to both to both uh, the, the 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 project of imagining India as only for Hindus and Pakistan as only for Muslims. I don't really go into all of that, but I do I do look at these two figures and their I mean not the figures these two poems or their and some of the texts that are surrounding that. But before this moment, so for late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, I look at a number of historians, uh, medieval historians, who in the anti colonial period are writing about Hindustan. They're writing about the history that I'm writing about, um, and I am, I am taken, I guess, is a word, by the ethics of history writing with which they confront their tasks. They are writing during the colonial period. They are talking about a history that has been radically, radically shifted by colonialism. They are trying to find a way of thinking about that past that is sustaining the struggle that they are engaged in. Now, it's not about them being pro-British or anti-British or you know, some of these modern categories, modern historiographic categories. It's, I, I see in them the type of deep engagement by the, by, with the exact same text that I'm reading. And their interpretation of those texts is what's important to me. And in the last chapter, I, I spent a little bit of time kind of thinking about some of these texts. I mean, the reason is one of the figures that I, I mean, actually many of the figures that I talk about actually write about Farishta. They translate or they render or they think about Farishta. So that's the kind of, you know, direct link. That's the reason they exist in the book because Farishta exists in the book. But the takeaway for me, much more than their engagement with Farishta is is the why of Farishta for them and the why of history writing for them. And what I um, talk a little bit about in the last chapter is that you know, for some of them, the way to think about the past, especially the deep past, right? So Farishta is 400 some years, 300, 400 years separated from them, um, allows them to predict the future. And what is the future that they're predicting? Well, the future they're predicting is precisely what ends up happening. That is the partition. Now, this is way before the actual, any actual claim to partition has, a political claim to partition is made. Um, this is before that. But as historians, they can see what the colonial episteme is doing. And they're able to logically think through what's the, what's the game that's going to play out along this epistemic line. And so even when they're writing and saying about these things, they understand they are, you know, they are historians, they're not political leaders. At the most, they're talking to another set of historians. Um, but they feel compelled to say what they're saying um, in order to, they're saying, let's write histories 
that are not within the colonial episteme. Let's make an intervention so we do not, what, what ends up happening does not happen. Some might say this is a, you know, a tragedy in a sense, um, but I find it empowering. I find it a history of resistance. I find it a history of epistemic resistance that we, the contemporary we, you and I, and the world that we're, that we're in right now, need to take a lesson from. Um, and what is the lesson? I mean, you know, what we look forward to is obviously not a physical partition of the subcontinent, but what we're looking forward to is a world that's going to be devastated by the climate catastrophe. We're looking at, um, you know, the water tables dropping out of reach. We're looking at uh, forced migration because of intense heat. We're looking at rising sea levels, drowning all of the port cities. Uh, we're looking at massive majoritarian projects that are targeting minorities. Right now, particular minorities like Ahmadis or Shia or Balochi or Muslims in India's case or secularists and um, you know atheists in Bangladesh. But once those particular minority questions will be resolved, other minorities will take their places. That's the logic of fascist thought and majoritarian thought. So we in 2020 are facing, I feel, another moment in which as historians, as intellectuals, we have to look forward and see what's coming and be able to say, this is what needs to be done. We need to think about the climate. We need to think about the, the question that majoritarianism you know, forces us to confront, which is, the question of toleration, the question of uh, um, dialogue, conversation. These are the things that cannot be allowed. We can't recognize a subject because they happen to be of a faith that we think is blasphemous. We cannot recognize the subject because they happen to be speaking in a language that we feel is treasonous. Um, that is the future we face. And in thinking about the historians of the early, late 19th, early 20th century, I found myself deeply moved um, by their predicament. And perhaps what I'm saying now is just as much of a tragedy in the sense that all of these things about 300 million people being forced to migrate by 2050 will end up happening because none of us are politically able to stop this world or and pogroms will happen because that's what happens in majoritarian uh, genocidal politics. But I thought that I feel, not I thought, I feel that it is my responsibility to still narrate this, to, to write this out, to think of this out loud. Um, and to do, do the ethical work that those historians, I feel, were doing in the, in the 1890s and the 1920s. That's great. Um, that answer fits in perfectly with my next question. Um, you know, going back to Frishta himself, and you know, you talked a lot about, uh, talked a lot in this book about um, the philosophy or ethics of history writing uh, that informed Frishta and other his, uh, Hindustani historians writing in Persian in this era. Um, could you explain what you mean by, you know, the philosophy or ethics of history um, in general, but also more particularly what, you know, what that meant for them 
uh, in this period? I think the first, uh, for sure, there's a particular ethics to history writing in the sense that history is an ethical subject, um, like philosophy is, um, and, and adab and ikhlaq. And so for him, um, writing a history means uh, creating a subject that's capable of recognizing uh, God's will, God's message, God's uh, uh, agency, as well as human fallibility. Um, as well as human foibles, human corruption, uh, the evil in the deeds that we do. And so for first study, ethics is to kind of read what he's reading, right? His archive. So one of the examples uh, that I give is uh, is Farishta's uh, treatment of Mahmoud al-Ghazni. And I try to show how Mahmoud al-Ghazni is is from the you know from the early 11th century is read by historians of the 13th century and is read by historians of the 15th century and then what does Verstad do with both his understanding of Nemozovazny's past as well as other historians who have written on it and his ethics here is to kind of claim a type of uh, critical evaluation of Mahmoud not to valorize him or demonize him but but to but to make him human but the act of making human a ruler especially a kind of a ruler who um you know has a type of kind of um uh, originary uh role to play for for lahore uh, in his history um to humanize him um uh, is is a, is a is an important part of his ethics as a historian. Um, and the shaping of that archive and the shaping of that historiography for Furishta, um, the intent there is to, I think, perhaps drawing upon Rasa Peri and drawing upon Naya Peri's, is to shape the reader. The reader of the history that Furishta is writing is, is then shaped, formed by the history that they are re- they are reading or hearing the case may be, and I think that ethics of history writing is present in Furishta's archive. So what I try to do is read the prefatory remarks of a series of historians on the task of history writing, um, all the way from the 11th century onwards. Um, and the reason I do that is that you know the philosophy of history that is constructed in the 18th century Europe uh, by people like Voltaire. And and Hume and, and, and Kant um, imagines history for Europe, um, obviously with the absence of history in places like India and Africa and, and, and China, etc. But it imagines the, the Geist as operating outside of these spaces, but towards still towards something. And what that towards for Hegel ends up being, you know, Berlin, uh, where he is, and in the period that he is. Um, and so the ethical work in this philosophy of history is is abstracted from a, a deity or godhead to the spirit of history itself. And what I find in the prefatory remarks of these historians and what they consider to be the ethics of why why you write a history, one of the things that I highlight is that all of these historians 
have a sense of their futurity. And then they they do a number of gestures that we, um, we being scholars of Persian historiography or Arabic historiography, have uh, largely treated them as, uh, you know, um, figures of speeches or rhetorical flourishes. Um, but the gestures I feel are ethically important. So one of the gestures that they say we are completing the task that someone before us had started. In other words, to place oneself in a line of historical writing or ethical thinking. And secondly, that when we when we produce a work, its errors will be corrected by someone who follows us. And in that way, in the linking of, I am contributing to something that was started by people before me, and what I do wrong will be corrected by people who come after me. That futurity and idea of past is itself an ethics. It's an ethics of belonging. It's an ethics of sustainability. It's an ethics that says, my task is not to hover over the world as the Geist does in Hegelian system. It's not to resolve the dialectics in that sense. My effort is to be part of a community and a community of Hindustani historians in the past and a community of Hindustani historians yet to come. And I try to elucidate that both for Farishta's precursors, but for Farishta himself, who, who's very much part of this ethics. And the, the historians that I mentioned earlier um, in the 19th century historians, in the funny historians, who, who are also writing in, in, entirely in that spirit. So the, the work of history then, if we, can, if we can abstract this conversation a little bit, the work of history is to imagine a subject in the future that is capable of reading and thinking critically and writing critically about the past that you are now a part of. And that means that as a historian, these individuals are very much thinking along humanistic lines and thinking along lines of um, the, the power of their texts to survive and the idea that they will survive. And the idea that I highlight is important for my book is the idea of Hindustan. They're writing with the notion that Hindustan will be around and there will be other historians who will do a better job uh, than you know they're doing in, in the period that they're writing. And so that comedy, that, that community is, is the ethics that I'm trying to highlight in the, in the book as a whole. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and now, finally, before we let you go, could you tell us what you're working on next? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been <laughs> I've been working on this book for a while. Um, this is a book on, um, I guess, Lahore, uh, where I was born. And I've been uh, doing an ethnography of that city for since 2009 or so. Um, and it's a book about unsurprisingly about history writing um and but how do you write about a space um in a particular way so if the first uh, is a story of a text then i wanted to kind of turn towards a place 
and think very, very seriously about a place over a, over a longer durée. So the book is, uh, is I guess, the blurb would be this, this history of Lahore or history of histories of Lahore, um, but from but from an ethnographic um, perspective um, rather than um, rather than a more textual perspective, I guess. Great. I uh, look forward to, to reading that when it's out. Um, okay, thank you so much. We've taken up so much of your time. Uh, look forward to speaking to you sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Sunny. I'm really grateful for uh, for you reaching out to me, for uh, giving me this opportunity to talk about my work, and obviously for reading and engaging with it. It's uh, extremely great. I'm extremely grateful, and it's very edifying to to see see this uh, see this engagement. No, I really, really enjoyed reading the book, and I hope uh, many others will do so too.